everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, the proprietor of this podcast, uh, YouTube channel on controversial topics in the history of the Catholic Church. And this lecture is going to be on uh, Dignitatis Humanae, Religious Liberty in the Catholic Church, the story of how the church uh, came to embrace religious freedom in the Second Vatican Council, Dignitatis Humanae, if you don't know, is the document which proclaims this and the controversy surrounding it. It is actually controversial to a certain degree uh, these days. And if you were expecting to hear this lecture earlier, um, the reason why it was so late in coming, just to FYI, um, the uh, talk was canceled last week, so I had to uh, record it later on. So this is the, the promised lecture on Dignitatis Humanae, Religious Liberty and the Catholic Church. So let's get into this quickly here. And um, just a little brief introduction on why this is, why this is actually uh, a, a controversial document. Well, Dignitatis Humanae proclaims, as we'll see, a right to religious freedom. <clears throat> And, and religious freedom, will, the definitions of this, mostly means freedom from coercion by the state in religious matters. And this appears uh, to some people to contradict previous solemn teaching. And by solemn teaching, I mean stuff that was defined to be binding and probably irreformable, if not infallible. Uh, and in particular, um, the objection, the major, the most stringent objections to this come from the Society of St. Pius X. If you don't know who this is, these are the, uh, this is the traditionalist um, priestly fraternity which broke away back in the 1970s under Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. They, uh, they object, they think this is plainly contradictory to these earlier teachings. And uh, this is important. Uh, and I say this because as I'm gonna go through this, I do think they have a legitimate argument to make. I don't agree with them, but I'll get to that as well. But I think that the appearance of there is pretty obvious. It does appear, uh, as you'll see. If you read the thing just literally, totally literally, without a whole lot of context, it looks like it's a total contradiction. So it is a, it is a problem. Uh, it is a serious problem. And this is bound up with the legitimacy of Vatican II, because it's one of the things that the reason why the SSPX, if you don't know, I, I, just, I was talking to someone, I think in a Facebook discussion with them, they thought they were they were they were heretics or they were schismatics. They're not technically. Um, SSPX, they had the excommunication lifted upon uh, their bishops a few years ago. And so they're kind of in an odd place. They're kind of like the Eastern Orthodox. They're sort of in a an odd setting. They have the sacraments, they have the priesthood. They reject this, this teaching of Vatican II, which is hard for them to accept. And I know people might have problems with them. I don't know who's listening to this. But I, I, having, I mean, as you'll see, I think they have a, I think they have a, there's, there's, there's something there. It's not their imagination. They're not crazy. You should take them seriously, even if you don't, I, I don't agree with them. I'll show you why in a second. But it is a problem. Uh, it is a serious problem, as we'll see. And this, this is bound up with the legitimacy of the council. It's one of the reasons why the Vatican has demanded that they give their adherence to all of its teachings. So, uh, and, and so basically, what you're going to see here is the story gets you the story of how. The church, um, again, appeared to make alterations in its idea of what the relationship is between the church and the state, and whether they did that or not, and what the, what the document actually means, as you're going to see, that's one of the things, very things that are issue in terms of humanity, uh, dignitatis humanity, I should say. 
So that's a little intro. So brief, brief overview, as brief as I can, about the church's teaching on what the state can do vis-a-vis -vis religion prior to the Second Vatican Council up to the early 20th century. Very brief, covering a long time frame here, but a couple of things about its teachings before we get into the modern world. The church has always made distinctions. Um, two things you should keep in mind. One, about how it treats, again, the term's vague anyway, but religion. Um, if you go back to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about not wanting to judge outsiders, right? I think this is chapter six or seven, where he talks about if you have a, a disagreement, bring it to the brothers, bring it to the church, don't go to the, to the secular law courts. This is one of the big distinctions you'll see uh, in terms of the way the church thought about for a long time coercion with regards to religious belief. Uh, you treat people who are inside differently from outside. We'll come to that in a moment. The second thing, and this is maybe even more important, is of course true versus false. Because, and this is one of the claims that we're running through this lecture. Church has always taught and believed it is the one true faith, the one true religion. God revealed himself to mankind in Jesus Christ. He left the church. The Catholic Church in communion with the Bishop of Rome is that church. Ergo, it's the true one. So those two distinctions keep in mind. But in any event, and anything like this relationship, as the church first started to teach about it, um, well, the, the first time they started to talk about these sorts of things, in the second and third century AD, when a couple of writers, Tertullian, who was a, a church father, a North African writer uh, living in North Africa, actually coined the phrase libertas religionis. That means literally liberty of religion. And what he's talking about there, he's writing um, to, I think, to, to the emperor, he's writing an apology uh, for the Christian faith, which at that point is a, is a, is a uh, not a legal, legally recognized uh, religion in the Roman Empire. And asking for tolerance, asking for toleration, on the basis of the idea that uh, every adult, uh, uh, he's talking about adults, he's not talking about children, I should point that out as well, uh, people uh, have a choice whether or not to embrace a faith. That is to say, you can't be forced into something you weren't born into. Um, later writer, another century after this, named uh, Lactantius, writing just around the time of the, the great persecution, the persecution of the emperor Diocletian, also wrote a tract arguing for religious, uh, religious liberty or toleration on that basis, that an adult person who is rational and free can't be forced into a faith they don't believe. I say that, by the way, somebody who wasn't born into it. They did not think that uh, that people who were born into a faith who had already embraced it couldn't be forced to carry out their beliefs. Their attitudes toward heretics were very different. They didn't, by the way, at that point, I should mention, again, it's a persecuted um, religion in the Roman state. Uh, they had no inkling of using the state to persecute heretics. Um, this is just their attitudes were very condemnatory. They had no use for them. Uh, and in fact, they had no, really no inkling. The church did not before the fourth century, before the conversion of Constantine, that would even be a problem. Tertullian actually at one point said it would be a, a, there never would be a Christian emperor. It couldn't happen. And of course then it happened. And that's when things changed. And as far as anybody can tell, as far as I could find out, with the coming of um, the conversion of Constantine, the Roman state, of course, it had a tradition as most, uh, you know, um, most civilizations of the ancient world that the state had some sort of responsibility for the religious lives of its subjects. As far as we're aware, the church never challenged this. They assumed that was natural and normal and good. We don't know that they said this, but uh, in so many terms, but they basically accepted that idea. 
what begins to change, and this will change as, as the church uh, from in the fourth century onward, uh, are ideas about the relationship of the church with the civic authority. And in particular, you're gonna have a couple of ideas begin to emerge. Um, in the Eastern parts of the Roman Empire, from the Orthodox Church later on, um, the idea of symphonia, the idea of symphonia that there should be this harmonization between church and state, that the emperors are the protectors of the Roman state. They can, by the way, punish and they do heresy, um, but they're meant to support the church, uh, supply its physical needs. Uh, the emperor, had, emperor is like a bishop in the Eastern Roman Empire. He's sort of, that's how, that's how Constantine saw himself. Uh, he called himself the bishop of those outside. And, uh, and that's how more or less Roman emperors in the East, the Byzantine emperors will call them that for convenience sake, thought of their relationship to the church. Uh, and so you don't have, you have a very close relationship to it. One that generally speaking, you'll have moments of persecution of heretics, mostly uh, occasionally, occasionally things like forced baptism um, in the East during the reign of, uh, of, uh, of Justinian, times like that. Um, but for the most part, that's, that's, the, that's the norm. Uh, as, in the West, more or less it's similar, except for a couple of things. One is that you already have, by the end of the fifth century, the introduction of the idea of the two swords. Uh, this is the phrase, it wasn't introduced, actually it gets, comes from the uh, scriptures, but the idea there are two swords, two powers that are established by God to rule the world. Uh, one, the civic authority to rule like the body, you know, soul and body, and the church to rule, you know, you got the soul and body uh, images there as well. The idea being that uh, you have two separate, again, functions. I wouldn't call them spheres at this point, but you have two separate functions. And you're going to have emperors from the time of Leo the First, Leo the Great, if not before them, uh, popes, um, I should say popes, not emperors, he's a, a pope. Popes uh, teaching that the uh, two things: one, the the state had a, had a, a duty to uphold the true faith, the Christian faith. At the same time, from the Galatians onwards, you also have the idea that while it should uphold the church, it had uh, it it should stay out of the affairs of the church, that the church should govern itself, because they do focus on separate ends. And so you're having this gradual distinction between those two things emerge, especially in the West. Uh, uh, and uh, in the early part of the Middle Ages. Now, things will change once you get to the Western, in the Western part of the, of the Christian world, Catholic Church, Middle Ages, with the uh, Gregorian reforms of the 11th century. I won't tell you what that is. You can have a lecture on it. You can go find that one. Uh, but the reformers in the Christian church who wanted to assert the church's independence against uh, civic authority. And they began to proclaim what they called the Libertas Ecclesiae. And this is an extension of the idea of the two swords, but it's much stronger. And the idea basically is this. Yes, God gave these two powers to, to govern mankind, but one is that uh, is the state is more by a sort of by nature, like it, by natural right, there is a civil order and a civil society, which is confirmed by scripture. You know, St. Paul says in the letter of the Romans that, the powers that be ordained of God, but the church has a direct divine charter for its, uh, for its authority, and therefore it's superior, and therefore it should be absolutely free from interference by the civic authority, and when push comes to shove, uh, you know, if they're, they're sometimes, you know, the spiritual and the, and the temporal, the material, if you want to say it, crossover, then in that case, the state should obey the church because it has a higher authority coming. God, this led to lots of conflicts, but this is the idea 
that it should, um, you know, the church had that kind of authority. Now, in terms of what it taught, in terms of like, you know, you're talking about different religions and everything, um, religious coercion, uh, again, this, this, this idea of inside outside comes back into play here because in uh, two medieval saints, I'll give you two of them, uh, influential thinkers, Aquinas and uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Aquinas says that basically, and he reaffirms the ancient teaching that you cannot forcibly baptize people who are not already baptized. You cannot uh, force uh, people who are born outside the faith to accept it. You have to use persuasion because faith is a, an act of free will by a, a rational person who has irrational faculties. Uh, Bernard of, uh, of Clairvaux said the same thing. He has a famous phrase in one of his sermons. Um, Fide suadenda es non imponenda. Faith proposes, it does not impose. The same attitude didn't apply to heretics. <laughs> this is the key distinction. The idea was, if you were a baptized Christian, if you lived under the Christian authority all your life, you are duty bound to uphold all of its teachings. And therefore, and this is Aquinas saying this, you can be forced to carry out the obligations you've incurred through baptism, which is why this is where the whole, this is the whole rationale behind things like the Inquisition, stuff like that. Uh, if you've given, you've essentially given your promise by, you know, remaining in the Christian fold, you can be coerced. And he has no, I mean, he literally says that it's a good thing to hand over people to the state to be executed if they're heretics. Heresy is a lot worse um, for most of these thinkers than than outside, they, it, and certainly this is the big thing here. That's usually where coercion is most. That's usually where it's it, it's seen to be most legitimate. As my point, um, there are strictures uh, in the church against, uh, as I said before, forcibly converting people from other faiths. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, as you get toward the end of the Middle Ages, this will begin to happen a little bit with Jews for reasons that I don't tend to dwell on here, but they're violations of the church's actual teachings. You know, things like forced baptisms happen as you get in the early modern period. Uh, it's against its own beliefs, basically. And it has to do with changes, I won't get into this, it has to do with changes partly due to the Reformation. But long story short, for the most part, that was what was considered um, appropriate, right? There's that distinction. If you're wondering why, by the way, that didn't apply when you get the Protestant Reformation. Remember the the earliest Protestants were baptized Catholics. That's why there was such a difficulty there. They thought they did have a right to coerce them because they had been Catholics before. Uh, and that, that as the Reformation, you get the last sort of change before modern teaching we're talking about here. This is the end of the 16th century. From the end of the 16th century up until the 20th century, essentially, Catholic theologians will start referring to the church as a societas perfecta. Uh, a perfect society. And this is, again, kind of a development of that whole idea of the two swords, but a lot more crystallized. The idea is that both the civic authority and the, the spiritual authority of the church, not that the people running the perfect or sinless, nothing like that, not even that all that their actions or the forms they take are perfect, but they are God has granted two set, and he said, and, it, and the teaching is there are two perfect societies: the civic, uh, the civic uh, authority, and the and the and the ecclesiastical authority, which are basically uh, perfectly fitted to perform the functions that they've been given. The church takes care of religious things, spiritual things, sacred things, whatever you want to say, the things of the church, uh, whereas the state takes care of everything else. And the reason why, if you're wondering what's the, what's the rationale for that, well, it's a direct, direct response to the Reformation. 
because in the Reformation you had not all of them, but a lot of there was a, a thought among people like Martin Luther that the true church couldn't be visible. The hierarchy had become corrupt. Uh, it was no longer viable. And the church response to this is no, Christ founded the visible church. It's here, it doesn't go away. It's perfect in that sense. Not the sense that its members are sinless. Doesn't mean that at all. Uh, and so that's kind of where, and, and, and again, the similar same teaching, of course, it expected the state to uphold its authority, to protect it from, you know, again, people are trying to undermine it from the false religions. That's part of its remit. That's the one way, that's the one way you can, of course, and this is the, the excuse sometimes for the persecution of Jews and stuff like this is that, uh, well, these, these Jews or these other Protestants are undermining the true faith. That's one of the rationales for the state stepping in and coercing or repressing other religions that way. And that's basic teaching before you get to the 19th century. Uh, in, in, in a brief, brief overview, that's a lot of time, a lot of teaching there. What begins to change all this and cause it to develop in the, in the, uh, in the 19th century, of course, is the, uh, the French Revolution's fallout. Of course, the French Revolution <clears throat> initiates the modern process of separating church from state. French Revolution, of course, at one point, basically abolishes the church in France, causes great upheavals, et cetera, et cetera. And it's out of <clears throat> uh, out of uh, the French Revolution, which you get both the the term and the doctrine, the political philosophy of liberalism coming. And I need to explain this for I'm assuming most of my listeners are Americans. If you're not, you probably know this, but liberalism means something very different in the Anglo-American world than it does, say, in Europe or elsewhere. If you're coming to the United States, you think of liberalism. It probably has a better maybe <laughs> maybe not today, but liberalism meant something originally very different. It meant about you know live and let live, neutrality, stuff like this. Liberalism means something a little more aggressive in 19th century Europe. The term comes from the name of a party in post-revolutionary Spain, 1819, a bunch of Spanish uh, anti-clerical types who wanted to get rid of, well, they wanted to get rid of the church and public life. Uh, they were called liberales. Uh, the idea being to free public life, to free the state, free the, free the nation state, this is an age of nationalism, from the interference of the church. So, and I say this because <clears throat> the attitude of some of these liberal regimes is not just hostile, it's violent toward the church. <laughs> French Revolution, of course, kills people, makes martyrs. Uh, several governments, not just the French revolutionaries, but later on the Italian revolutionary uh, uh, movement, the, the Risorgimento, which uh, creates the modern nation state of Italy, seizes church property, takes it by violent force through warfare. And so, and so this is one of the things, one of the reasons why the church, A, has to develop its, its teaching, because now it's no longer, no longer that the sort of, you know, it's no longer has that symphonia where it's going in concert with the state anymore. Uh, it's being shut out uh, or trying to be shut out of public life. Uh, and the Resort Demento starts in 1848, uh, it starts after 1848, but um, culminates in 1861 with the creation of the Kingdom of Italy. And then eventually with the, the taking of the papal states in 1870, what's left of them. And this, is, this will lead popes to try to develop church doctrine to uh, deal with this, um, but also to restate the older teaching, and particularly Pope Leo XIII, who, again, in France, um, they have another revolution in 1871, and so they come out with another uh, republic, and it's a very anti-clerical republic, and so he... Uh, he tries to have Catholics, tries to encourage French Catholics to work along with this new republic, even though it's kind of anti-clerical. 
And my point is that the church is in a state of upheaval, practically speaking, about what its relationship to the state is, what its relationship is <clears throat> to societies in which no, it can no longer be assumed everybody's Catholic. And uh, being, and again, I should mention, most people that are, are hostile to the church or anti-clerical in, in Western Europe are baptized uh, Catholics. It's not mostly Protestants that's doing this in France and Italy. So the only people that th that situation has that uh, as a background. Which probably brings me to uh, the, the, these developments, um, which take place for the most part at the level of the papal magisterium. We'll come, there's one thing we'll talk about here, but um, about a 120 year period uh, development of, of the church teaching on this, going from the 1830s up to, about, up to the end of the reign of Pius XII, in which uh, the church clarifies, because when I talk about people, when I talk about church teaching before the modern era, there was never really one document. There's never, a, a, they never addressed it uh, directly or self-consciously for the most part, except in certain circumstances. And so what's gonna happen in this period is the popes are gonna put, put down in a fairly definitive way what the church teaches about um, church and state, uh, its relationship to the state and the state's responsibility toward religion in general. And this, I have to say, this is one of the reasons why this, why dignitized humanity is a problem. This magisterium, it's pretty consistent, goes over the, the reigns of about seven different popes from Gregory the 16th in 1832 up to Pius the 12th. And I, I mean, there are at least 20 papal encyclicals that address this issue, some more directly than others, but at least a dozen that directly address this in ways that as you're gonna see, make the, the the uh, the, the demo development that the fathers of Vatican II wanted to do very problematic, as we'll see. Um, one thing to note is that this was a response to, uh, well, in the long run, the French Revolution, but a response to uh, uh, Catholic liberalism. Catholic liberals were a group of um, theologians from the part of the 1820s, 30s, reacting to changes um, in Western Europe because of all the revolutions. <clears throat> Um, two Frenchmen, Lemonet and Mont, um, well, Mont uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Montalabert, but two different thinkers, espoused what effectively was the separation of church and state. And they espoused this idea for a variety of reasons. They thought that, again, for a variety of reasons, they thought uh, that, that the church needed to do this, that it would flourish if it separated itself from, um, from, uh, from the, the upholding of the state authority. I had several other arguments. They weren't, by the way, they were not Enlightenment-inspired figures. They were not inspired by, you know, the philosophy or anything like this <clears throat> in their teaching. They just thought for practical reasons, it would be better if the church basically separated itself from, uh, from, the, uh, uh, from that tight relationship that it had before, uh, and it should give up all of its privileges. And the teachings basically condemn this. They, they literally do. Um, the first, the first um, of these encyclicals, I'm going to go through all of these, that touches on this is Mirari Vos from 1832 by the 16th. Uh, it's actually meant to condemn Lamine. It doesn't mention him by name. But starting with uh, that encyclical, going through, again, this is reiterated most forcefully by, uh, forcefully by the Pope's Pius IX. We'll get to him in a moment. Um, and then Leo XIII. Pius IX, if you don't know, issues Quanta Cura in 16, 1864. This is after um, Montalabert gave a, you know, I'm probably screwing up his name. I'm sorry about that. Uh, that says not his name. Um, uh, gave a speech um, basically calling for a free church and a free state. 
totally, you know, separated, a neutral, secular public sphere, whatever. And um, Quanta Coda is probably the most, of all the documents I've mentioned here, the one that has the best claim to infallibility, it literally just condemns the idea that A, all religions are equal, B, they all deserve equal religion, equal treatment by the state, and C, that the, 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 uh, the state should not uphold the true religion. So he literally condemns. Uh, with his full authority, those, among other things, those those statements in the syllabus of errors in the Quantacura. Uh, and all these popes reiterate the idea that the state has a duty to uphold the true religion. Why? Because in general, the civil society, human society, depends on religion. And of course, the best one to have is the one that's actually true, uh, the one that Jesus Christ founded. That means basically the Catholic Church. I should point out to you, by the way, they sometimes, these encyclicals, and I've read through a bunch of them, uh, 15 or so of them, uh, sometimes they'll use the term religion without qualifying it too much. They'll say religion in general. For the most part, when they talk about religion, they mean the true one, they mean the Catholic Church. Or well, they uphold the side. The state has a duty to promote the true religion. So, okay, what about other religions? And this is the other thing, other sort of aspect of this. Now, they reiterate several times, and I'll show you in this in a moment, <clears throat> some of these uh, uh, excerpts from Leo the 13th. Non-Catholic faiths can be tolerated. And this is in fact something that um, pretty much all of them admit uh, either uh, tacitly or openly. Uh, the Catholic Church of course has tolerated, um, for example, Protestantism. Uh, in the uh, Holy Roman Empire, for example, this is where the Reformation broke out. They had no choice but to come to some a sort of rough agreement about um, you know, tolerating, you know, Lutherans and Catholics, other places, not, not Calvinism, but uh, at least Lutherans anyway. And so they had done that in certain areas where it was necessary. But it's not ideal, as you'll see. The actual ideal, and this is the actual optimal thing, is to have a Catholic, uh, have the state supporting the Catholic Church in a Catholic society. And if they're minorities, they should, this is again, this is the, I'll get to this in a moment, I'll show you this. Um, the, uh, um, the idea basically is to uphold truth as against error. And that this goes back to, because he'll talk about it, and he actually will use the phrase, Leo XIII, uh, in his encyclical, and his are probably the most important, his two, uh, Immortale Dei and uh, Libertas Plesantissimum, um, because they give the positive, because Pius IX condemns the false teachings. He gives what, it, what the church says the true teachings. He uses the word human dignity, but the word human dignity means the freedom to follow God's law, both natural law and his divine law, which is why in their teaching, the church uphold, to be the state should uphold the church, the Catholic church, the true faith. Why? Because the church is the, the guardian of the true faith and of the natural law. And so that's why it should give support to it. And its support is meant to, you know, human, when he says human dignity, to be free and unhindered from following that true religion. That's what that means, basically, religious liberty to, to uh, Leo Thirteenth and the thinkers of the 19th century. Which leads to the question, do you have a right, if you're a Protestant in a Catholic uh, land, to follow um, <clears throat> what the church says, Catholic church says, is a false faith? Uh, and effectively, and, and again, this is actually a little bit ambiguous, right? Because the phrase you've probably heard with regards to this is that error has no rights, which is the idea that, you know, basically you can be persecuted because you don't have the truth. This is what's usually thrown at the church. And this phrase was used by apologists, I'm assuming theologians, 
I say this because I never actually find that phrase, I couldn't find it anywhere in these papal encyclicals. They don't say, they never come out and say, the false religions have no rights. What they do say uh, repeatedly is that false religions should not have the same rights and privileges as the true one. They cannot be treated equally because they're, it's true and false. You don't treat truth the same way, to, uh, equally to falsehood. However, in, I guess you could say in principle, perhaps they have no rights. Uh, I tried looking for this phrase. I couldn't find it anywhere. It must be, I'm sure theologians used it because you'll, as you'll see, this is what, if you read about this stuff, this will be the sort of conventional narrative about uh, Vatican II is that it, it overthrew the idea that error has no rights. And I'm not sure the, the traditional teaching was exactly that refined. Because uh, I, I think the biggest thing because both Pius IX and Leo Thirteenth mentioned this, is that they don't want, they cannot treat them equally, which of course, if you have an enlightenment idea that all religions are equal, they're all the same, equal rights for all people, that's much more of a problem. But um, but still, the idea that error has no rights, I'm not necessarily sure it's in these papal documents. And I want to show you for a second, uh, share this other um, paper, at least read it if you're listening to this on, on podcast. <clears throat> Just a couple of quotations to show you what I mean by this. Uh, Pope Leo XIII writing in Immortality Dei, which is on the Christian constitution of states. So it's on the proper you know, idea of a state in a Christian society. Um, he says uh, in this quotation I'm reading here, this is uh, paragraph six, the state constituted as it is, is clearly bound up to act in the manifold and weighty duties linking it to God by the public profession of religion. Not such a religion as they may have a preference for, but the religion which God enjoins, which and which certain and most clear marks show to be the only true religion. So too, it is a sin for the state not to have care for religion as something beyond its scope, or as of no, or as of no practical benefit, or out of many forms of religion to adopt the one which chimes in with the fancy. For we are bound absolutely to worship God in that way which He has shown to be His will. Um, Religion's a part of the natural heritage of mankind. People naturally worship. Now that the true religion has been revealed, the state has a duty to at least make people free to go follow it. Uh, at least that's what I interpret him saying. Uh, another uh, quotation from Immortality Days, 1885. Uh, men who really believe in the existence of God uh, in order to be consistent with themselves and to avoid absurd conclusions, understand that differing modes of divine worship involving dissimilarity and conflict, even on most important points, cannot all be equally probable, equally good, and equally acceptable to God. It's a rejection of the idea that all religions are the same or equally good. However, he says that, and this is the one of the qualifications he makes, is the church indeed deems it unlawful to place the various forms of divine worship on the same footing as the religion, but does not, on that account, condemn those rulers who, for the sake of securing some good or of hindering some great evil, allow patiently customary usage to be a kind of sanction for each kind of religion having its place in the state. And, in fact, the churches want to take earnest heed that no one shall be forced to embrace the Catholic faith against his will. So basically, this is an idea not of embracing a false religion as good, but of tolerating it as a, as a necessary evil in some ways is the doctrine he's getting here. And I won't read through the rest of these quotations, but um, it makes clear, um, again, he reiterates this, this is the, if you're seeing this on the internet, uh, on YouTube, uh, quotations from 
uh, libertas prestantissimum, he says similar things. Uh, he's saying, quote, this is, she does not forbid public authority to tolerate what is at variance with truth and justice for the sake of avoiding some greater evil or of uh, obtaining or preserving some greater good. Um, but he says, and goes on to say, but the more a state is driven to tolerate evil, the further it is from perfection, and that the tolerance of evil, which is dictated by political prudence, should be strictly confined to the limits which is justifying cause uh, the public welfare requires. So yeah, the church can tolerate these religions. It can't necessarily embrace them as being, well, true, because <laughs> they don't believe that. Uh, and that would be to embrace error, according to uh, Leo. And that's, that's re reiterated, I can't stress this enough, over and over and over again in, uh, in again, uh, numerous documents from the 1830s onwards. And again, not every, and again, we'll get into this at the end of this, but the, the, the weight of the teaching is very, it, it, we'll get to this, the status of a minute, but it's, it's a very um, heavy weight in its favor as being part of the church's permanent teaching. So that's the papal magisterium as, it, uh, as, it's, uh, as we saw it coming up to Vatican II. What happens at the Second, Second Vatican Council to, uh, to change all this? Well, of course you have changes coming after 19th century. Um, you have, of course, the two world wars, which will alter the landscape of Europe. You also have increasing Catholic involvement in ecumenism, especially after World War I. In the 1920s, there were a series of talks uh, held between uh, officials of the, the Church of England and the Catholic Church unofficially without papal sanction from 1921 to 1926. I say that because the Pope, pope eventually stepped in and stopped all this. <clears throat> Pius XI was the Pope at the time. He eventually issued an encyclical saying that the Catholics couldn't uh, participate officially in these, 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 these talks. Not these talks specifically, but in things like the, the World Council of Churches and stuff like this, because they didn't, because of what we just said, they think they're the true religion. You don't, you can't go talking like your equals to phase you think are false. Uh, but you have increasingly Catholics doing this anyway across Western Europe, um, as you're going to see, especially after World War II. World War II is a big turning point because, you know, in, in World War II, in some places, you're going to have people with different religious faiths fighting against the Nazis together. Uh, after the war, you're going to have, in places like Germany, political parties in which Protestants and Catholics have worked together for the first time. This really influences people. You know, they would have been in separate communities, not had much contact with each other before all this happened. Now, after World War II, they're becoming together, more people are being more open to stuff. Um, you're having contacts, for example, in the 1930s between Catholics and Protestants, but Catholics and uh, Catholics with uh, a bunch of Russian exiles, uh, Russian theologians from the Soviet Union, uh, from the Russian Revolution, sometimes called the Russian, the exile school of, of Russian theology, making contacts. And there's, there's, there's a desire to try to overcome differences, to reunify the churches. It starts this way. So that has a huge impact. You also have the impact of two separate um, streams of intellectual uh, streams. One coming from the, the uh, Thomas philosopher Jacques Maritain. Now Jacques Maritain had been earlier in his life and was a fairly traditional Thomas, but he was different in politics. Early in his life, he'd been a member of the of Action Francaise, which is a sort of right-wing political movement in France, which was run by this guy named Charles Marat, who was this agnostic, uh, sort of semi-pagan, whatever, nationalist, uh, ran afoul of the, of the Vatican. The Vatican condemned it. And at that point, Maritain flipped, flipped his, his script 
and turned to something called personalism. This is an idea, this is a philosophy which emphasizes the dignity uh, of the human person and the dignity of the human person by nature has dignity, which can't be sort of imposed on by the state. In other words, he flips from embracing a, a sort of right-wing nationalism to embracing uh, a philosophy and a politics which wants to separate church and state, basically. He wants to have a neutral public state because, again, he thinks that'll be better for the flourishing of the human person, which in turn will be better for the church, basically. And I mention him because his ideas will be very influential at the council, probably the more influential of the two people I'm talking about here, if only because his friend uh, Giovanni Mar uh, Battista Montini will become Paul VI. Uh, and so his, his personalist philosophy has a lot of influence on the outcome of the document. The other person who's involved in this, who's influential on this, is John Courtney Murray. And there has been, since the 19th century in the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, more, God, I hate using this term, more liberal members of the church who wanted to take the American constitutional settlement as the sort of guiding, you know, ideal or whatever of church-state relations. Uh, this was actually condemned uh, to a certain degree in, in 1899, the 13th issued a a letter um, condemning what was called Americanism. This is the idea that like, you know, the American constitutional sentiment is like, it's like the perfect ideal for the church. The church should adapt to it because it will be better. And I should mention all these various liberal forms of, of Catholic thinking on this all had as their justification, it would make evangelization, missionary work easier. Always is in the background of this stuff because they know they need to change something to appeal to modern society. But this is one of the reasons, but John and Courtney Murray was a, um, was a, uh, a theologian who worked at uh, Georgetown University. Um, got into a, a serious argument about this for the last 10 years of his life, uh, 10 years before the Second Vatican Council in, in 1963, over this issue with a guy named Joseph Clifford Fenton. And Fenton took the opposite view. He took the traditional view. And they sparred back and forth in the pages of, uh, of, of the American Ecclesiastical Review. I think that's what Fenton edited and in other places going back on this. Uh, Murray was actually uh, silenced for a period, not allowed to write because of it. So you had uh, this tension here. Um, but at the council, Murray's ideas are gonna win out. And, um, and so he, his, his pushing for an idea of, of, uh, of religious liberty is gonna have a big influence on, on this coming from those two strands at the council. <clears throat> One thing to note about the council itself, and you when you read this, you can kind of see this in um, in accounts of this, is that the council was not meeting in a vacuum. Uh, there was a, there were a lot of outside influences pushing the church in 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 a direction toward religious liberty. One of these was the presence of non-Catholic observers uh, in 19 was it, 1960. I think it was the end of 1960. Pope John the 23rd created the, the Secretariat for uh, Promotion of Christian Unity. And so for the first time, the uh, idea of trying to reunify the churches became a part of the Vatican apparatus. And it, had, it would have a big influence. John gave it a big influence at the, um, at the council. And they invited observers from all the religious denominations to come to, to, to Rome for the council. They invited uh, um, they invited observers from the World Council of Churches. Again, that would have been unthinkable just five years before this. Pius XII would never have done anything like this. And you can tell, like you read accounts of this, a lot of the, um, especially the more, I use my terms carefully, progressive members of the council really wanted to 
they wanted to do something that would, um, what's what I'm looking for? They wanted to reach out to the world. They wanted to let the world know that the, the Catholic Church wasn't this, you know, whatever, um, that it was, it was changing its attitude toward them, right? They wanted to project to the world a better, you know, uh, less condemning face and all this stuff. And so this is in the back of their minds. It's also in the back of their minds that the press is watching all this. It has a big impact on people at the council, that they know they're being watched, that people are taking them seriously. There are clearly prelates there who like being taken seriously by the press. Um, recently, uh, Hans Kuhn, if you don't know who that name is, he was a theologian who made his name as a, a very, very progressive uh, theologian at the council. He liked the press a lot and they liked him. Um, but there was a real sense they needed to answer. They wanted to give an account of their beliefs to the world and justify them. So this is very much on the back, in the backs of the minds of people um, who are pushing for this around John III. <clears throat> and then finally, one of the influence on this council is that of the Cold War. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, you have. Uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, you're going to have the American delegation. They're very concerned about communism. American bishops are. They're against it, obviously. But you're also going to have plenty of bishops there from the communist world, from Czechoslovakia, uh, from the Ukraine, and of course, uh, Poland, which, you know, you probably know what I'm talking about, Karabojtiva, actually doesn't make there for the first sessions because the communists let them go. This is going to be one of the big influences, um, the concern for the church in communist countries in terms of declaring religious freedom, as you'll see in a moment. But there's also pressure from the American side. <clears throat> uh, oddly enough, there was a book written a couple of years ago. I have not read it. I cannot judge it, but it's an interesting thesis. Uh, a guy named David Wemhoff. I can't remember the name of the book. It's about John Courtney Murray. And he makes the claim that, um, he makes the claim that John Courtney Murray was at Georgetown, he was in DC, that he had contacts in the CIA who wanted him to push the idea of American religious liberty at the Second Vatican Council. Um, if you don't know, the CIA was involved in a lot of like propaganda operations during the Cold War. Uh, about 20 years ago, someone wrote a book on, it's called the, uh, the CIA's Cultural Warfare Program. And what that refers to is after, uh, not starting in the 1950s and 60s, the, the CIA began paying big time authors, novelists and writers to write anti-communist like articles and books and stuff. They actually um, bought, they actually started, you know, literary journals, try to get public, like elite public opinion on the side of America versus the Soviets. Big names, by the way, people like Vladimir Nabokov and people like that. It, it was a whole thing. There was this actual warfare program. This guy claims he's found, docu I haven't read the book, but this guy claims he found documentation that there was what he called a doctrinal warfare program as well. In other words, the CIA was trying to get the churches to push American style religious liberty as part of its anti-Soviet program. Again, I have no idea if that's true or not, but it's given you know, what we know about the CIA, it sounds plausible, right? So there's a lot of pressures bearing down on the church. I should say the pressure came from the other side as well. If you don't know, uh, the Soviets um, uh, basically pressured uh, the council. They were, they were gonna, they actually had initially, we we're gonna issue a, uh, a document condemning communism uh, John the 23rd desperately wanted to have Russian observers come to the council, and he agreed not to actually um, read the, the table that condemnation. So there's, there's all sorts of things going on in the background of this, of this besides these doctrinal fights. So something to keep in mind.
So where does the change come from? Where does the new teaching, uh, if it is new, come from in Dignitasimane? Well, even before um, the council start, well, two things, no problem. When uh, John called for the council in 1959, uh, he set up several Vatican commissions run by the Curio, members of the Curia to draft schema um, to be debated uh, at the council. And uh, it took them three years to do this, basically, from 59 to 1962. At the same time, however, you had members of the hierarchy in Europe who wanted to have their own schema. And this is one of the things that happens at the council. And in fact, in uh, 1960, a couple of bishops and a couple of theologians uh, in Fribourg, uh, the university there, drafted a document which would eventually be presented, which was presented to the, the Secretariat for the Promotion of Christian Unity and eventually become the basis of Dignitatis Humanae. And, and sometimes called the Freeborn document. And this document basically is a rehash of 19th century liberal Catholic ideas about church and separation of church and state, as well as notions of almost enlightenment liberal autonomy uh, that find their way into the document. Effectively, uh, this document basically rejected the idea that was promulgated by 19th century popes that the state had to support the true religion. Meanwhile, at the same time, the, the Vatican Commission on, uh, on the Church had a document, the Ecclesia, which had a section, a um, couple of sections, on uh, church-state relations, which reiterated the traditional teaching uh, in fairly contemporary terms, but they basically didn't change anything. Uh, and so you went into this, and you're going to have um, these two documents there. Now, the, to understand this, the way that the Vatican Council worked, they didn't discuss ideas, there were like several thousand bishops there, they didn't discuss ideas amongst themselves, then write a document and then vote on it. Uh, what happened was you had these commissions set up um, uh, to basically be subjects of debate. They debate this stuff, go back, make alterations, and then that would be vote on the final document this way. Uh, and so the people who wanted to, and this is a broader point about the, there was a minority um, uh, of council fathers, bishops, theologians, their periti, who wanted to push the, the council in more radical directions. And they managed to take over this whole process uh, the first week the council opened. Um, they convinced, before they made any sort of vote on the original schema that were produced by these commissions, which were much more traditional, the original Curia schema, not, not just the schema on on religious freedom, but everything else, they managed to convince the uh, the Pope, John XXIII, to throw them all out, create new commissions who they, they eventually convinced him to put mostly progressive thinkers on there, who in turn created documents which pushed them in directions they wanted to go. In other words, the progressives so-called so took over the drafting process the first week. And this is what's gonna push uh, uh, religious liberty to the forefront. And in fact, this is important because um, one of the um, the relator, the relator is someone who, the person who is going to present, who is charged with presenting the document uh, documents uh, for discussion to the the, count, the council fathers uh, uh, as a whole. The relator on the document on religious liberty, as it came to be known, was a guy named uh, Emile Desmet, who was the bishop of Bruges who was one of the original authors of that Freiburg document. And so the early, and among the early authors of the first drafts of this were, were, was in fact John Courtney Murray. So the people that wanted to overturn that teaching really completely got their way initially in this. 
And so the deck was stacked in favor uh, of people wanting to do this. And in fact, uh, early drafts affirmed a right to religious freedom grounded in human dignity. Um, there were um, debates on this. The first round of debates happened in 1963, which changed the limiting principle for this right from, uh, you know, what was limited, you know, religious freedom was at first the common good to public order. Um, again, probably because the, the idea of the common good being a limit on freedom was a key, key part of traditional Catholic teaching. I think they wanted to get rid of it. Uh, furthermore, uh, DeSmet used some fairly underhanded tactics in trying to promote changes. Uh, I'll give you one example. Father Brian Harrison, examining the acts of the council, um, said that uh, DeSmet slipped, in a, slipped an important amendment to the document uh, into the second to, uh, into the to the third draft, which is the second to last one they debated, debated the council, uh, into the document for them to, to to vote on without announcing it to the council fathers, so that they never actually debated that that section. And I'll show you in a moment; it was a really important one for the document. Um, when three of these bishops realized that he'd slipped something in there, they demanded they be allowed to uh, drop it because they hadn't had a chance to vote on it, uh, and then Desmet claimed it couldn't be removed, uh, and so it made it into the final document. So they were trying to push this, this minority on uh, and the council in ways that really weren't very, um, uh, they weren't in keeping with the spirit of the council, let's put it that way. Nevertheless, it did not totally get their way. Excuse me. Uh, a final vote was scheduled for early 1960, for November 1964, but a minority in the council who, uh, um, mostly opposed any sort of declaration of religious freedom, convinced the council to delay the vote because at that point they, they were on their third draft of the schema. And they, they made so many changes from the second to the third draft, it was basically a different document. And the, uh, got the council commissioners to agree to this. And so they delayed it for a better part of a year so they could lobby for more changes. But they did to the document. In fact, um, they actually got eventually did these minority they uh, minority um, uh, opponents of uh, the the uh, of the declaration to make what we'll see significant changes to this, <clears throat> and in fact it's their delay and the last set of debates they have another set of debates in 1965 I want to say in my notes um, uh, I'll say probably in the uh, uh, in the fall of 1965 which effectively revealed uh, something very, very significant because the uh, document passes, when eventually passes, it'll pass with flying colors. Like there's like 2,200 people there, 1,900 signed the thing. Only like 225 people um, don't wanna promulgate the document. That having been said, if you read through the debates, something that comes out, uh, explains a lot about the document itself is that uh, amongst the majority, uh, most favored a, a declaration uh, of a right to religious freedom but they all disagreed almost to a person on exactly the reasons for it and what the justifications for it would be. Just to give you some of the ideas, I won't go through all this stuff, but it is fascinating. You have the idea coming from, uh, uh, from Maritain about religious liberty being about the dignity of the person, that's there. You also have people asserting that the state has no competence in religious matters, which again, that, that would seem to conflict what went before. You have others stating the traditional liberal Catholic claim that uh, it will help with evangelization, missionary work uh, as well. Um, and so you're going to have people 
basing this on things like, you know, well, we live in the modern world now. We can't have uh, this teaching in a pluralist society. Other ones will say, yes, because we've, you know, um, because we've, uh, doctrine has evolved, we have to sort of do this stuff now. Um, they, they use a lot of these sorts of arguments and the arguments of the people who are opposed are pretty much what you'd expect, traditional arguments, that religious freedom is only for truth, not for erroneous religions. Uh, it can only be tolerated, not approved. Um, freedom of conscience only belongs to those who, whose conscience is well-formed, that conforms to divine law, divine and natural law, right? Not for an erroneous conscience, that sort of thing. Uh, they also, several people made the, made the point that, um, Marcel Lefebvre mentioned this, uh, that the teaching, the document as stated, contradicts the teaching of the 13th and previous, previous uh, popes. Uh, and so you're going to have a lot of these things being worked out there, although, again, by the time you got to that point, the declaration was going to pass one way or the other. Uh, but it had an impact um, just because uh, just because the um, uh, it, it did lead to uh, certain qualifications being put into the text. And I'll show you these in a second. Uh, among other, uh, and just to let you know, again, I mentioned there it was like 1900 something for only 225 against or something like that in the vote. There were uh, there were some 120 bishops who spoke about the document, and over 600 bishops, including Carol Watiba, um, future John Paul II, uh, um, uh, issued submitted written interventions uh, for this. In other words, there was really no agreement on. A lot of things. Let me let me show you now. Let me share you just some quotations again from Dignitatis Humanae, uh, going back to uh, this here. And one of the things that the minority got them to say, they actually stick, stuck this in there because they they declare right away in the second part second part of the the, um, the text. And I'll read this here. This Vatican Council declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men have to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and any human power in such wise that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone and associated with others, within due limits. So they do put some limits on that. But even before that, in the first paragraph, they inserted this phrase, and I'm pretty sure this was a matter of the, uh, the minority insisting on this. It leaves untouched it leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies toward the true religion and toward the one church of Christ. Um, and so you have this, uh, they're basically trying to say at the, at the beginning, yeah, we're not trying to change church teaching. And they go on though to say things that sound like they are changing church teaching. Uh, this third paragraph is this, this is an interesting one. This has to do with the, the sort of shenanigans I mentioned earlier. This is from uh, paragraph two of Dignitas Humanae. It is in accordance with their dignity as persons, that is beings endowed with reason and free will and therefore privileged to bear personal responsibility that all men should be at once impelled by nature to seek the truth, especially religious truth. All right, that sounds, that actually sounds fairly traditional. Listen to the last part. In consequence, this right to immunity continues to, uh, this right to immunity from public coercion continues to exist even in those who do not live up to their obligation of seeking the truth and adhering to it. And the exercise of this right is not to be impeded provided that just public order be preserved. I don't know if you caught that. What it says in the beginning is, well, you're obligated to seek the truth, right? To be free in, uh, in order to exercise this right, right? The, again, basically, if you're seeking faith and good conscience, you should be free from coercion. What if you're not? 
Well, it says, yeah, you get your free. In other words, if you're if you're not even taking your you're seeking for the truth seriously, it still applies to you. This, by the way, was the the part that uh, Bishop Desmet snuck into the document without anybody noticing, because it seems to basically give a right to people who have no interest in truth about religion at all. Um, and so you have again things in here that sound really hanky. Um, Interesting. Uh, in other places, you're going to have stuff in here that uh, they'll try to justify. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the teaching um, with regard to scripture, I didn't put them in. Uh, I'm not going to read them here, but they have a whole section on uh, passages from the New Testament trying to, to, to give uh, examples of this. Uh, they state that this has roots in, uh, in divine revelation, even though it's not actually affirmed there anywhere, <laughs> which is actually true. I'll, I'll read that part here. It says, what is more, this doctrine of freedom has roots in divine revelation, and for this reason, Christians are bound to respect it all the more conscientiously. Revelation does not indeed affirm in so many words the right of man to immunity from external coercion in matters religious. So, um, and so, yeah, it introduces a sort of what a very broad idea of religious freedom, only I should point out, um, only limited by a couple of things. One, just public order. That's the phrase they use a couple of times. Um, da, 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 da. Um, yeah, provided the just demands of public order are observed, uh, religious communities rightfully claim in order claim freedom in order they may govern themselves according to their own norms. What does public order mean? This is one of the problems with the document. It doesn't really define public order at all. We'll come back to that and I'll let me go for this little real quickly. Uh, switch back to the slides here if you can see these. Um, it also makes clear, I mentioned this uh, already, the stuff about being grounded in human dignity, freedom from coercion for a person's religions. It only, it says specifically, it only applies to the civil order. That is to say, it doesn't apply to churches or the church itself um, disciplining its own members. Uh, and this is one thing that came up in the debates. There were some people who were worried this, hey, this means we can't, we can't like excommunicate people who deny our teachings. No, this is only applying to the state in this document. So that's one thing they're talking about here. Um, as I mentioned before, it's only limited by needs of just public order. Uh, one of the things that just public reasons why just public order does is kind of confusing in this document is that they also, the minority got the um, got the, the, the commission to put to put traditional teaching about, about the church being the true church of Christ and its, and its freedom being necessary to public order in the document. If you read it, it's it's very, it's like you're reading it, you're like, what? The first two paragraphs are basically, yes, there's a right religious freedom. And it looks like, yes, it's this total, like, oh God, it's overturned this teaching. And then it says all these very contradictory things. It also asserts, by the way, that the, and it says in the very beginning that the document intends to develop church teaching on this matter. And then goes on to allude to the experience of the church and the experience of society as, as necessitating this does not in any way make clear what experiences they're talking about. So in other words, and this is noted by people who were in favor of not just the document, but overturning the older teaching, people like John Courtney Murray, people like uh, Eve Congar, the first two paragraphs, they, they were happy with that. The next, the rest of the, the rest of the document is literally, I think, completely incoherent. It says a bunch of contradictory things. Uh, other words, yes, there's a right, right to religious freedom, but they never give a definition of what religion means. They don't give a definition of what right means. 
of what uh, uh, there are all these key terms left unde undecided. Stop that, Gus. Um, that's my dog. Um, uh, all these key terms are left undecided because the bishops themselves couldn't agree on any of this. Uh, as I mentioned before, the fact they they wanted to declare religious freedom but couldn't agree on what it was exactly, except for freedom from coercion, or why it should be promulgated and on what bases. This is the reason for the text being the way it is. So conclusions, we'll come back to this. Religious freedom in the church today. As you can tell, the, 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 the majority wanted this at the end of the council. I, I, I over underplayed this in the talking about the debates. Should have mentioned this, but every single bishop from a communist country voted for that, uh, for that document. It was a big concern to people like the future John Paul II. And the reason why, of course, and I say this because um, the attempt, the, um, the sort of enlightenment ideal of autonomy and the sort of enlightenment idea of, of, of uh, you know, religious liberty, you know, that puts all religions on equal footing is a solvent for public authority, of course. And that's kind of what John Paul II did with communism. He basically used these quasi-liberal sounding ideas about religious freedom to sort of throw that in the faces of the communists and it worked. The problem of course, with those ideas, they work on any public authority, including the church. Uh, and again, the document as we're talking about here, isn't that clear, but it says things, just to give you an example, and I didn't go through all this. Uh, at times it sounds like this is the affirmation of like the enlightenment or something in this document at certain points. Other points, it sounds like it's affirming Leo XIII's doctrines. It's very, very strange to read. Uh, and this is the reason why the SSPX has such a, a, a problem with this. Uh, I have to say, I never took anything the SSPX had to say seriously until about four or five years ago. Um, things always get complicated when you start thinking about things for yourself. Uh, having looked at these documents, you can easily, uh, you would not be, it would not be, you would not be cr crazy to think that they, yes, the church had just done a 180 and overthrown 120 years worth of, of teaching like that. It certainly looks like that on first glance. I don't think it does it, mainly because it's not very coherent <laughs> in terms of its actual reasoning, but it definitely is a possible or definite reading, a, a logical, natural reading of the text. The other thing to note about this is that Leaving aside for a question, we'll get to this in a moment, the, the status of the document, it's the teachings of the church. One of the ironies about the, um, about the most liberal members who wanted to get rid of the teaching of Pius IX and, and Leo Thirteenth, and they wanted to, you know, get rid of that aggressive stance toward the world. They like to say that one of their justifications for this was, well, they have a juridical view of the church's, uh, the church's relationship with the state. In other words, it's too legalistic. And it's only the reason they did that, and this is so the, so the argument goes, is that is the result of those 19th century revolutions. In other words, they, they treated as, they treated uh, the teachings of Leo XIII and, and his confreres as if they were, they were merely historically conditioned. And now that historical conditions had changed, we need to change the doctrine. I say that's ironic because you look at these all the documents of the Second Vatican Council, but especially this one. This seems like an attempt to make peace with the post-war liberal order in Europe. Uh, the liberal democracies had come out of World War II smelling like roses. They had fought the Nazis. 
Um, the more authoritarian governments, the more Catholic ones hadn't. And so I think this was a, there were liberal members of the of the delegations from France and from Germany and other places. They wanted to two things. They wanted to bring to an end the conflict between the church and those types of regimes, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But this this seems like a peace treaty with that liberal. They they seem to be betting on it, as if the liberal order was going to last forever and that it had been proven to be right or something. I say this because, of course, uh, events of the last 10 years or so have shown that the liberal order <laughs> uh, is definitely not eternal. And that, in fact, the ideal of sort of neutrality in the public sphere for all religions is seemingly under attack now. And uh, I say that's ironic because, of course, the you know, bishops of the United States still still are sort of banking on that. I'm not sure that's the best, best bet. Uh, I think in some regards that post-war liberal order was a good thing in many ways, but I, I don't think it ever was going to last forever. I, I think it's beginning to come to an end, to be honest with you. And so in a practical sense, it may not be that big of a deal anyway. Um, if you, at least in terms of church policy, this ideal that's formulated by Dignitas Humane. <laughs> and then finally, the status of the document itself. Now, again, you ask most people in the church, most theologians, they'll praise it to the heavens. Um, but you still have the same problems you had at the council debates. There's not a lot of agreement about what it means, not a lot of agreement about what, what the basis of, of, of embracing religious freedom means, what its limits are. And in fact, again, I'll, I'll say that I don't, mean, I don't mean this in a sense of impugning the, 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 uh, the council follows authority. I'm not, uh, I accept it. The problem is the document is just really flawed. Uh, I don't think it actually promulgates, it promulgates a, a, a vague, ill-defined right, which we don't even still don't know what it means because of those debates. And I quite frankly have never, I've heard, you've heard, and there've been, by the way, many attempts to try to explain what it did, what it means. You'll have people like uh, Father Martin Ronheimer, so more of a, a liberal. He basically, he basically says, yes, it rejected definitively the older ideal. It's no longer operative. I, I We'll get to this in a moment. That's one view of this. You have people like Father Brian Harrison who says, yes, it's it's um, it's compatible with Leo the Thirteenth and the earlier magisterium. Uh, it only changes his 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 shtick is that it's a, a change of policy, not a change of principles. Um, you have some more imaginative efforts to reconcile them by uh, Thomas Pink. Um, uh, his idea basically is that. <laughs> And I have to say, I don't agree with this historically speaking, but his idea is that the church basically, his idea was back when the, the Roman state became Christian, the church effectively baptized uh, the state with its own authority, basically when it started literally, I guess, baptizing kings and stuff like this. And that now the state was no longer Christian, it was sort of withdrawing its, its if you like, its approval for the state to use religious coercion. I don't think that works at all. Um, I think it's pretty clear if you read through enough primary sources, the church, the church always thought the state had some role in religion. When it makes claims that it shouldn't deal with religious things, it's almost entirely talking about it should interfere with the church, <laughs> because the church is the true faith, and therefore the state has no right to interfere with that, its own internal governance. Uh, it never says it can't touch other religions, so I don't think that's going to work. Um, but it's a muddled thing. And I say this at some point, it's not going to happen anytime soon <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Um, this document will have to be clarified. It can't stay like this forever. It's a mess. Um, the teaching of the Dottis Humane, in my opinion, 
then finally, and again, I am no theologian. Uh, I don't have the, the qualifications to, to start through all this, but I'll just give you my opinion, my two cents. I don't want to leave you without this. And what I think, Dignitatis Humani and the Magisterium. Uh, I said at the beginning, I don't think the SSPX is quite right. I don't think it does definitively reject the earlier ideal. But the first thing to note here is that the you know church-state relations and therefore what the church can, what the state can do uh, with regards to religion, they're not, it's really an ideal. And what I mean by that is it's a, when you see Louis the Louis the Thirteenth talking about, you know, what the state should do for the church, he's quite aware that that's not going to operate in every, every corner of the globe. In other words, the church has existed in, in many different um, situations where it wasn't the dominant church. And so in other words, this isn't like, for example, the teaching on marriage, right? You make love to someone who, if you're married, you have sex outside of your marriage, you're an adulterer, period. <laughs> you have committed adultery. It's not subject to different historical circumstances. There are mitigating factors that can lessen your culpability. It's always adultery. It, as he mentions, it's not always evil to tolerate other religions in that regard. Uh, and so, you know, um, uh, so in that, in that regard, what this is about is not actual policy. It is about what's optimum for the church. That's one of the reasons I think it's such a neuralgic point for the SSPX is, and again, I, I don't want to pass dispersions. I think some of the fathers at Vatican II, and definitely some of our some of our, our church leadership today, they don't really believe the Catholic Church is the true religion anymore. <laughs> I'm laughing, but like you know it's true. They act like it, they talk like it. That's that's really what's kind of behind all this, is that it seems like you know, you know who I'm talking about, probably. Um, there are certain bishops don't really think the church is really the true church. Or they have this mistaken notion that because the true church is the true church, we need to go oppressing Protestants or something like that 24-7, which I don't think is true. Um, that's one of the things about this. So that's why it's a neuralgic point in some ways. It's about the who, what the, it's not about policy so much as what is who is what is the church and who, you know, that sort of thing, although identity. Second thing to note, of course, is the question, this thing I can't answer, but levels of textual authority and trying to determine what the church teaches, you have to take into account, okay, what authority promulgated it, uh, what type of document it is, what type of statements it makes, right? Usually the most authoritative statements are things like when, you know, uh, the Pope or the council will say, uh, in, the, in the name, they invoke their authority and they, you know, they issue a declaration they mean to bind all Catholics, you know? Um, and there are debates about how binding Dignitatis Humanae is. Now, excuse me, Brian Harrison has made this point. It is a declaration, which the, the most authoritative documents to come out of Vatican II are the constitutions, because they, they are constitutions. They're supposed to be doctrinal in nature a little more than the other ones. You can make that argument. On the other hand, all the documents of Vatican II are, have the approval not only of an ecumenical council, but also of two different popes. Remember, it was called by John the 23rd. He dies in the middle of it. Paul VI becomes pope. So it has the imprimatur of two, two successors of St. Peter. So it's kind of hard to like say, well, it doesn't, you know, it has a big authority behind it. On the other hand, I have not heard one good reason why, again, I mentioned all those encyclicals of Leo the 13th and Pius the 9th and Gregory the 16th and uh, Pius XI and Benedict XV and Pius X. 
they all repeat the same teachings, basically, over many documents. Um, I would say, again, Pius the Ninth uh, in Pantacura, Immateriale Dei in Libertas Pistantissimum of Leo the Thirteenth, and that's about as authoritative as you can be without an explicit statement of, I am using my infallible authority to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, otherwise, I don't think you. I don't think you can overturn them and contradict them. Even if you're, even if, by the way, even if you are a really liberal uh, thinker, the problem is you'll undermine Vatican II because all of a sudden, what makes Vatican II? You'll take away from its authority if you do that. That's the problem here. Um, and I, I don't think you can go much farther than dignitatis, dignitatis humanae goes toward. Enlightenment ideas of personal autonomy, which they don't they don't come out and say it, they kind of want to say it, it doesn't quite get in there totally, or toward liberal ideas of religious freedom, which treat all religions the same. Because that is kind of to get to the last points I want to make here. This is the this is the thing here is like um, you know, um, this idea of the common good and the idea, and again. And I'm not saying I'm not saying by the way I, I'm opposed to or like religious freedom. I think you can reconcile something like that with um, with uh, uh, with Leo the Thirteenth and the previous magic and traditional teaching in that regard. But I, I don't know that you can go too far again toward what a lot of people want to say is that well this is you know they're all basically the same they're not the same, and this is what. You know, if, it's, if it seems like the church prior to the like Vatican II was very harsh, that's because they insisted on the distinction between truth and falsehood. Um, you know, they have a point, right? Why would you want to treat true and false things? And again, this may, we all, if you're listening to this and you're Catholic, we all, you know, we all have Protestant friends. If you're Protestant or you're Orthodox, I'm not doing this to be mean. I, I I, I'm an adult convert to the, to the Catholic faith. I chose it because I thought it was true more or less the true faith. There are parts of other faiths that are, have truths in them, but they're all other rest of them are more or less false. That's the whole point. Uh, and I, I expect most people I know, I have friends with who are Orthodox or Protestant, they believe the same thing about theirs. That's natural, <laughs> that's what you do. And again, we disagree that that's a difficulty. It's not insuperable. What's worse is to put the idea out there that well, there is no true and false, that they're all basically equal or something. Nobody believes that anyway. I don't think deep down. Um, having said all that, I, I do think you can probably reconcile. Um, I think you I think you can claim a right, a certain sort of limited right for, if you want to put it this way, false religions, and even in a Catholic state to practice their faith. Because again, I go back to that phrase that again was used by council, used by the opponents of, of, of the declaration in the council debates. Error has no rights. Again, I don't find that in the papal documents. What they say is they can't have equal rights. And in fact, I think this is the good thing that Dictatomus Humanae was trying to say was, hey, look, you know, um, the, the state shouldn't normally use coercion to repress false religions. And the reason why it should be obvious is that the experience of the religious wars and all this conflict has proved that, that can be, it backfires too much, right? There's an experience there that has taught the church to respect you can talk about personal dignity. You can talk about personal humanity. That's fine too, but not at the expense of, this is where it gets to the whole relationship between freedom and truth, right? Um, um, sometimes defenders of dignitatis humanae want to celebrate, you know, ah, the right to go seek religious truth, right? Well, 
not just seek it, but find it. <laughs> because one of the things that, you know, the church has always taught is that, well, God's revealed the final truth about religion to humankind and given it to the church to take care of. And of course, again, we can't, uh, again, by the way, I don't know how you could go on being a Catholic, being a bishop, being a priest, if you didn't believe that. This does not require, by the way, and I think this is, again, one of the good things about Dignitas Humanae, you know, when you say you can't, you know, have equal rights for, for different religions, it doesn't mean you have to, like, it doesn't have to be some sort of, um, you know, I think, if, again, especially if you're in an English group, in an English-speaking country, you think of, like, anything unequal, like, sounds like Nazism to you, which it's not. In fact, if you're going to talk about a Catholic regime, let's say it was a uh, Catholic country, 80% Catholic, 20% other religions, Protestant, whatever, what would be the minimum thing you'd have to do in order to have the state support the true religion, right? And still recognize, uh, unless, it, unless it hinders public order or something like that, uh, the rights of false religions to practice their religious faith. I would say not much. Um, the state, you had something like this, um, you know, in certain states like Ireland, right? Catholicism was a religion of the state, officially, but everybody else could practice their religious faith, basically. I don't think it actually said that the Catholic faith was the true church, but that's, that's the indication, that's the implication. There's actually, I think I repealed this a few years ago. There used to be the same case in Costa Rica, in South America. The Catholic church was the official religion of the state. Everybody else got to practice their religion, uh, fine. It's like 97% Catholic, both those countries, but oh well. But again, I don't think you, that, that's the good thing about digitized humanity is like, they need to limit what the state can do coercively. It's too powerful. Um, and again, it's proven that, again, it's probably uh, in, um, incongruent with human dignity, which you don't have to, by the way, you don't have to embrace an enlightenment view of human dignity. And by enlightenment view of human dignity, I mean the idea that, that, that treats human autonomy as more important than truth. The idea that you get to treat, not only uh, choose your religion, but choose which one is true rather than the one that's been revealed to you by God. And so I, I, again, it may not satisfy a lot of people, I'll say that, but I think you can reconcile these things. And that's the problem, of course, is practically speaking, I'm not sure what would satisfy everybody at this point in trying to do this, but I do think it's possible to reconcile them. But I am not a theologian, do not quote me, do not pass go, do not cry, do not uh, spend 200, whatever, you get the idea. But that is my uh, that's my lecture on Dignitas Humanae. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If uh, if you did, please go to uh, my website, churchcontribution.com. Um, go to a Facebook page, um, Controversies in Church History. I have a Twitter account. I, I think I have an Instagram account. Doesn't do, don't do much with it. A couple of last notes. Um, I've made a decision that the last lecture of the semester is not going to be held in person, so I'm going to be holding it live. I'll have a live uh, lecture to give for you guys, so you can focus in on that. Also, I'll make an announcement that going forward, uh, this will probably no longer be in person, so it'll only be online, so you will be able to um, uh, have access to it that way. Probably going to be doing more going forward with my website, churchconservation.com. I'll be doing some things online, my blog there, so keep uh, eyes on that. And uh, I'll, I'll send uh, messages through the Facebook page and the website and get things out to you guys so I can let you know. So this is uh, Derek Taylor, Controversy in Church History, signing off. Hope you guys, um, hope you guys have a, 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 a great weekend and uh, uh, God bless you all. Take care.